would, and open in the first John chapter five. And we're studying here the first five verses of this chapter in a series of three messages that I've entitled, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. And I've taken that from verse number three, in which John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. And the word grievous there in that third verse means burdensome, as if carrying a heavy weight. And so that's where I got the title. And here the scriptures tell us that we are to love all people. Uh, Mainly in these verses, it's talking about love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And John is showing us that people that really do know Christ and love him uh, believe that helping their fellow Christians is not a burden to them. None of God's commandments are burdensome to someone who really knows the Lord. Now, in just a few minutes, I'm going to briefly go over that again. And then we're going to go on to discuss tonight, verses 4 and 5 will be the subject this evening. We'll get to in just a moment. But if you'll look in First John chapter 5, starting in verse number 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, we'll just run back over the first couple of points of our outline from the first two messages. And that first point is the fellowship of believers. And what we're being taught about this is that because we are born of God, because all believers are born of God, we all have the same spiritual father. All believers are in the family of God, and so being in the same family, we have a special relationship not only to God the Father, but also others that have received him as Savior. And so he says here that all those that are born of God will love others that are also born of God. So we're talking here about a familial relationship, and if you wanted to make a comparison to your natural birth, it would be that you have the same traits as your parents. And in this case, we're talking about spiritual genes, which means that we have the same characteristics as God our Father. Sometimes, if you're studying this issue, you'll find that the traits that God has that he's able to pass on to those of us who are his children are called the communicable attributes of God. And that just simply means the part of God's nature that God can give to us. Now, tonight is not my time to speak to you on the attributes of God, and that just simply means the essential characteristics of what makes God who he is. But if I tell you that some of God's attributes are communicable, then you would probably understand that there are some of his attributes that are incommunicable. So there are some things that in the nature of God that he's able to give to us and other things he's not able to give to us. But the chief communicable attribute that God has is the attribute of love. And that's the subject of this passage. Jesus says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. And so love is set forward as the distinguishing characteristics of a Christian because a Christian is like his father God. So if we are born of God, then we will love others that are born of God. 
Then in the second part of this message, we talked about the following of believers. And I'm sure that all of you are aware, those of you, I think just about everybody here tonight, uh, maybe all of you are Christians, and you know that living the Christian life is often very difficult. We're involved in a spiritual warfare against an enemy that's very powerful. Uh, Satan wars against us in many different ways. The Apostle Paul called it the wiles of the devil in Ephesians chapter 6. One of the things that he does is that he causes a division between us and unbelievers. So Satan tries to affect us by those who don't know Christ. And so the gospel divides us oftentimes in friendships. It divides us in our family relationships. So we have that struggle outwardly with the world, but we also have an inward struggle. And that's because we have two natures. We have a sinful nature that comes by our natural birth. And then we have a new nature that comes from our supernatural birth. And those two natures are always warring against one another. The flesh resists everything that we try to do for God. Now in Scripture, when you see the word flesh, when it's used this way, that's sort of religious speak. Flesh is religious speak for the inward disposition. And so when Paul talks about the flesh and he says the flesh serves the law of sin, he's not talking about the skin that covers your bones, but he's talking about the inward disposition or he's speaking of the human mindset that we're born with. And so that is essentially the same thing as talking about our human nature. And according to Scripture, that mindset or that disposition, the human nature is against God. And so keeping God's commandments is not natural for us to do. The spirit wars against the flesh. Those two are always colliding. And keeping this commandment of loving one another cannot be done except it's done supernaturally. And so that attribute of God is communicated to us by God in only one way, and that's through our uh, implant, the implant, implantation of the new nature. It's just not natural for us to love the way that God loves. And God's love is a self-sacrificing love. And if there's one thing that the flesh hates to do, it's to sacrifice self. And so that becomes a huge burden for a person who's not a Christian. It's impossible for him to do. The flesh will not bear that, not self-sacrifice. And so to love God as God says that we are to love him and to love others as God says we are to love others is impossible for people to do unless God is working in us. And every time that God begins to work in us, the flesh rises up against that every single day this happens, and it tries to keep us from obeying God. And so it would seem that we would become weary of that battle. You fight that battle every single day of your life, and you think that you would finally come to the conclusion it's not worth it. It's too much of a fight. It's really too much mental anguish. And so we come to the conclusion it's really too much of a burden to obey God's commandments. But what John shows us here is that a real Christian never thinks that way. Instead, he says in verse number 3 that keeping this commandment, keeping the commandments of God are not grievous. It's not a burden. David said it this way in Psalm chapter 1. He said, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And then in the 119th Psalm, he said, I will delight myself in thy statutes. 
I will not forget thy word. And three more times in that same psalm, David said his delight was in the law of God or his delight is in the commandments of God. And so that shows us that none of God's commandments are a burden to his people. And so what we do is when God says, do this, we gladly obey him. And when he says, carry your brother when he has a need, then we gladly obey and we pick up our brother and we carry him. And not only do we do it, but we rejoice in the opportunity that God gives us to do it. Now, the contrast of that is a person that says he is a child of God but the commandments are grievous to him. The flesh overcomes him because God's commandments are too much of a burden. And this is the person that John speaks of in chapter 4, verse number 20, where he says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. And the reasoning here is that if his brother is too heavy for him to carry, then certainly loving God is too heavy as a burden as well. And that's because when God gives strength to do one of these, he gives strength to do both. Now, we can go on from here and look at verses 4 and 5, where John says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, tonight I want to talk to you on this third point, which is the faith of believers. The faith of believers, and that is a victorious faith, It is an enabling faith. It's a faith that enables us to put God's law into practice. And so whenever you see people that are continually practicing God's law, you've just found a community of believers. And we're going to take the rest of our time tonight to talk about this particular kind of faith and why this faith is so different from any other kind of faith. Now, the first that we would notice about this is it is an objective faith. It is an objective faith. Faith in faith itself is not the faith of 1 John 5, 4. Now, we're, I've got a title of a song here. That's the uh, title of my message. And I was thinking about another song, and this was a song that uh, wasn't done by the Hollies, like this, uh, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. That, that song has some pretty good lyrics to it. And uh, even though they probably didn't intend to have a 1 John 5 application to that song, But there was another song that I was thinking of, and the lyrics of that song are not quite as good. And this was another popular song, and it was done by Frankie Lane and also by Elvis Presley. And this song says this, I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. I believe that somewhere in the darkest night, a candle glows. I believe for everyone who goes astray, someone will come to show the way. I believe, I believe. I believe above the storm the smallest prayer will still be heard. I believe that someone in the great somewhere hears every word. Every time I hear a newborn baby cry or touch a leaf or see the sky, then I know why I believe. Now, what you won't find in that song is saving faith. Now, you certainly can't base it on any objective proof. I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. Well, if that's true then my front yard is going to be a jungle of flowers about the 1st of January. So really, even to be fair to this author of the song, he had a metaphorical meaning for these words, but the real gist of that that song is just believe. Just have faith. You just got to have faith, man. 
And that's really what the world of Christianity teaches today. Faith in faith is okay as long as you believe in something. And if you believe in something, then everything will be copacetic. And so in the Christian, I guess you would call that the Christian theory of relativity. What's true for you uh, may not be true for me, but as long as you believe it, as long as you're sincere about that and you do believe it, then that's okay. Well, John would never accept that. Because saving faith takes you to heaven. And saving faith has a very firm object in mind, and that object is Jesus Christ. And specifically, here in this chapter, this is a faith that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if we plug that into the reason uh, for the book, we find that John makes that a point of contradistinction to those that did not believe that Jesus was God incarnate. One of my dad's favorite quotes was from a seminary professor that he had who, who said, God immensity packed himself into the cell of a Galilean virgin. And so to believe that Jesus is the Son of God is to believe that the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, came to this earth in human flesh. To believe in him is to believe that he came to this earth, that he became human, that he lived a perfect life, that he died an agonizing death on the cross... And then after his death, according here to John chapter 2, he arose from the grave, or John says he is the satisfaction for our sins. And it's to believe, according to chapter 3, that he gave up his life for us, and there that he arose from the dead for our justification, that he ascended back to the Father, where he now makes intercession for us. It's to believe, according to chapter 2 again, that he will appear, that he will come again, that we will live with him, and will live with him eternally in heaven. And that is just a little pinch more than I believe for every drop of rain a flower grows. So it's an objective faith, one that's based in solid evidence. According to Acts chapter 1 verse 3, Jesus is alive and showed himself to be alive by many infallible proofs. And according to John in this book, we found out in the first chapter that he was seen, he was heard, and he was touched. And then if you go to the Gospel of John, you find in the 20th chapter that John says, I wrote all of these things so that you might believe, you might understand that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing in him, you would have life in his name. So it is an objective faith that accepts all of these doctrines of the Bible concerning Christ. And really, that is just one of those tests of Christianity. This is what proves that a person is a Christian. Do you believe everything written in Scripture about Jesus Christ? And so that's nothing less than the doctrinal test, which is one of the three proofs of genuine faith. Now, also, this faith is different, and the next characteristic of it is that it is an obedient faith. And you probably expected me to say that, because we've been relentlessly bombarded by John in myriads of ways about keeping of God's commandments. A test of faith is keeping the commandments. And maybe you get tired of hearing me say that. And the writer, or the readers rather, of this epistle that John wrote, they might have got tired of him saying it too. But there's a way to get over being tired of it, and that's just to start doing it. You don't get preached to about it if you're doing it. And so if your faith is not... An obedient faith, it's not any good at all, and especially it's no good if it doesn't obey in this cardinal central doctrine of Christianity, which is the commandment of love. So obedient faith is one that is never overburdened when it manifests itself in love and compassion for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Real faith, 
Saving faith has the ability to obey and the desire to obey God's commandments. In other words, you live by your faith. Now, there's some people that are confused about that when, when they read the Scripture and it says, the just shall live by faith. We will live eternally by faith. Saving faith is what gives us eternal life. We live in that sense. But I want to show you for just a moment how the book of Hebrews puts this, and, and there's a parallel to this Hebrews passage in 1 John. Hebrews 10:38 says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. The just shall live by faith. And what the writer here is talking about is that the just will live righteous lives, that they will walk according to God's commandments, that they will be holy as Christ is holy because the object of their faith has made them that way. They are empowered and able to be obedient. But we notice here that the writer says that those that don't live this way or can't live this way are different. So what does he say about a false professor? Well, a false professor is one that draws back. In other words, he quits. And there were people that stopped following Jesus when the going got tough. They quit on him. They weren't any longer his disciples. They quit because they were false professors. They hadn't truly been empowered to live by his commandments. And that parallel to the Hebrews verse is found in 1 John 2.19 where it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So there were some who just couldn't do it. They, they couldn't walk the walk of Christ. And so they got up and left. And that's the evidence that they're not of us in John's vernacular, which is the very same as saying those people are not really Christians. So the real faith of Christ is an obedient faith. It keeps on. It doesn't quit. Now, John has another way of explaining this faith, which we can add on to this last statement. It's a faith that doesn't quit. It is a persevering faith. And he uses another word. It is an overcoming faith. Three times in two verses, John says, it is an overcoming faith. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Now you notice there that verse number 4 says, Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Why does he say whatsoever instead of whosoever? Well, he will say whosoever. That's in verse number 5. But in verse number 4, he says whatsoever. And that has a little bit different emphasis. Here, the emphasis is the power of the new birth. And so the focus is not on the victorious person, but on the victorious power. He says, you've been born of God. And it's the new birth that gives us this victorious power. That power is generated in the believer by the new birth. Now, if I, could, if I could put it to you like this, it's like God dispatching tanks and F-14s and the atomic bomb to attack Grenada. God bless President Reagan. But th there's no way that a war like that is going to be lost. You can't lose that war because this is backed by the host of heaven and Jesus Christ is the one who's leading the charge. And so the power of the new birth is a victorious power. So it's a promise that even though you don't feel like you're able to overcome anything. Sometimes you're weak in the faith, and sometimes you worry about stuff that you have no control over, and yet you still overcome. 
So we take verse 4 not so much as an exercise of personal faith, but it's speaking of the power of God working in us by regeneration. It ensures the victory so that every child of God is an overcomer. Whatever God is successful at doing, we are also successful at doing because of that new birth. And what is it that God will do? Well, he overcomes powerful enemies. He overcomes Satan. He overcomes sin. He overcomes sinners. As the Word of God says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I want to go back to a familiar passage in in the book of Philippians. I've used this recently when we were talking about citizenship in heaven. And uh, there's also something in these verses that is germane to the discussion that we have tonight. This is Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, where Paul said, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now, that last part of the verse, he is able to subdue all things unto himself. And what that is really the, the, the same power that's found in the new birth. It's the power that raises a spiritually dead person into spiritual life. And when that was done, every opposing power that wars against the soul was defeated. We're assured of victory because of the new birth. Now, there are two more words that we need to note here before we move on to verse number 5 in whosoever. And the first word is that word victory, the word victory, which is nike in the Greek, nike. Now, we say Nike. Uh, It means victory, and that's why it's become a big sports name. I mean, the swoosh on the, the emblem, the swoosh, that's a symbol of victory. And so the athlete that wears the... Nike brand has an advantage over the poor soul that wears Adidas because he's got the Nike. But this is really an interesting word. It really is an interesting word when you consider the New Testament application of this word to believers, to Christians. And this is because the Greeks had a goddess that was named Nike, and she was the goddess of victory. But what the Greeks believed were that was that the only ones that had power For complete victory were the gods. Complete victory belongs only to the gods. So a Greek commander, a great Greek commander like Alexander the Great, he may have victory and he may conquer here and there and he has victories here and there, but eventually he's going to lose. Someday he's going to lose. He knew it, they knew it, and we read history and now we know it because the only ones they thought that were totally unconquerable were the gods. Now, you consider for a moment that John used that very familiar word to the Greek-speaking people, this word, Nike, and he applied that to Christians. Now, there's nobody in their right mind that would believe that a ragtag bunch of Christians, I mean, people that are hated, people that are the off-scouring of the world, people that have attached themselves to this fellow that was nailed to a cross, who was crucified there and died on a cross, who in their right mind is ever going to associate the word Nike with that group of people? And then to top that off, we read how that the Apostle Paul used that same word in Romans chapter 8. 
And this is the great passage where Paul speaks of our eternal security. And he says that the believer endures distress and goes through persecution and tribulation and famine and peril and sword. And then he says there's none of those things that can separate us from the love of God. Then he says in the 37th verse of Romans 8, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors, Through him that loved us. And that whole phrase there, more than conquerors, is the word hooper nakao. Hooper nakao. Or we would say hyper Nike. That's what that word means. And so we could say super Nike. And he means that's beyond victory, it's beyond conquering, it's super conqueror, super victorious. And so Paul used a superlative with that word Nike. And folks, that was mind blowing to the Romans to think you could ever use words like this and use them for, for, for Christians as a description. But this is what both John and Paul say. It's what they say about our birth in Christ. We are overcomers because of a supernatural birth. We are super overcomers. And so that great power that God puts into us causes us to defeat all lesser powers. There is no power that can defeat us, not Satan, not principalities, not the powers of darkness, not spiritual wickedness in high places. Then there's a second word that we need to look at here, and it's the word world. And when it's used this way, world means everything that is opposed to God. World is the composite opposition of everything that makes our obedience to God difficult. What is inside of us, whatever is outside of us, whatever opposes our obedience in this sense, is the world. Now, if you turn back to chapter 2, in verses 15 and 17, John sums that up with three statements. He says in the 15th verse, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, listen, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So there are those three things. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and uh, the lust of the flesh, rather, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, you may remember that those are the three ways in which Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Satan tried to overcome him with these temptations. First of all, there was the lust of the flesh. And that was the temptation for him to turn stones into bread. And if he had done that, he would say, well, I can satisfy my needs better than God can satisfy my needs. Then the lust of the eyes, that was the sin of presumption. Satan said, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and see if God will keep his word, see if he'll save you. And then the pride of life was to sin with prosperity. Satan said to Jesus, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world. And how many people have fallen prey to that temptation, that have surrendered to that temptation, and they've given up service to God in order to get a little bit more financial prosperity? Jesus said, take up your cross. He said, forsake everything and follow me. And the pride of life says, no, no, I think I'd like to keep a lot of that stuff for myself. So you see, there are three areas here that sum up the world's pull on Christians. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Christ overcame all of those temptations. And he gives us, through the new birth, the power to overcome those same temptations. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will also with the temptation make a way to escape, to escape that ye may be able to bear it. So that's the victory that overcomes the world. It's promised to us because we are the children of God. So one failure or two failures or, or three times of weakness, even more, does not mean that we're not going to be victorious in the end. True Christians do not quit. They don't fall out because their faith overcomes the world. So that takes care of the whatsoever. The whatsoever is the power of the new birth. Now we move on to the whosoever in verse number 5. And here we get to talk a little bit about what personal faith does. Because of our personal faith in Christ, we also overcome the world. And that takes us back to an obedient faith. It's the faith that we live by on a daily basis. It's the faith that helps us to say no to sin. Now every one of us is tempted to sin every single day. My temptations may not be the same as yours. I have them, though. I have temptations. They may not be like yours, but they're temptations. Uh, You may have a temptation to drink alcohol. I don't know. Maybe you have a temptation to smoke a joint. Those are things that don't interest me. And so Satan doesn't come to me and say, well, you know, I think I'll tempt him with a beer. I think I'll tempt him with with something else, some some kind of alcohol. Well, he's not going to tempt me that way. I don't have any problem passing up a bar as I drive by. You know, I'm not like the uh, restless reform that have to have their beer. And some of you may be tempted to go into bars. You are tempted, but your faith stops those carnal desires. I'm not tempted to miss church. I mean, it's likely that when you come to church that I'll be here too, because I'm not tempted that way. But we have some church members that just don't seem to get here. They can't overcome the temptation to do something else besides be in church. But most of you are not like that because you've beaten back the devil so many times on this issue that he doesn't bother you too much with that anymore. So we could go on and we could give many different examples of personal faith, the faith that you live by. So it's evident that you are a Christian because that faith keeps working in you so that you don't give in to the temptations of the flesh. And so it's the same faith that keeps you serving God and reading your Bible and praying and coming to church and sharing your faith. Those are areas that the flesh tries to win out over you, but it can't win because of your faith. I'm going to finish up this message by giving you some other scriptures concerning overcoming faith. What happens to people that have overcoming faith? Well, I want you to turn right in your Bible here, 1 John, and go over to Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to read some verses here. And each one of these is a sermon. But I'm not going to preach any more sermons tonight. I'm just going to read scripture to you. What does a person with overcoming faith receive? Well, we start in Revelation 2, verse 7. It says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. In the 11th verse, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Verse 17, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, 
which no man knoweth, saving he that receive it. Verse 26, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Verse number 5 in chapter 3, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Verse 12 in the same chapter, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. The 21st verse, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. And then go all the way over to chapter 21 and verse number 7. Revelation 21, verse number 7. Great verse. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Who is it that gets all of that? Well, our text says, Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And you see how important it is to have the right object of your faith? Raindrops keep falling on my head. Thank God I don't believe that for every drop of rain a flower goes and that grows and that's the extent of my faith. My faith is more substantial than that. My faith is in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Jude said, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. That's who you have your faith in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us out here tonight to look into your word. Uh, What a tremendous blessing it is to know Jesus Christ, to have him as our Savior, to have a faith that enables us to uh, just to live after the Spirit, to enjoy our lives here and know, Lord, that you're with us in, in every situation that we go through. You're right there beside us. We thank you for that, Lord. Bless your people. Uh, Give them a a special blessing for having been here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we.